All right, and good morning, Ridge Point Church. We're really, really glad that you're here this morning. Uh, today, we're actually wrapping up a series called Playing Favorites. If you've been with us, you know we've been in the book of James, chapter 2, particularly for this series. We're going to get into that in just a second. Before we do that, one last thing, a reminder. Next week, we kick off a brand new series called Pick 6, and we've been talking about this for a while. Some of you guys have already submitted some great questions. In fact, we have enough questions. We have more than enough questions to get us through. But I know that some people have submitted questions that maybe you're thinking when you submitted a question, well, maybe it's not going to take a whole like 35-minute message to cover a question. But I have a small question that I've always kind of wondered about. If you could just kind of hit on this. We've had a number of questions that came in that maybe not like big, huge, or we had 35 minutes worth of content in that question, but just stuff kind of rattling around our minds. So what we're doing for this series, we just kind of added that this week. We started going through the questions, some great questions. Here's what I did. There's a week that I'm in Honduras. We have some other stuff going on. So Chris will be speaking and some other people will be speaking at that point. And so I took all the hard questions and said, hey, here, you guys have those. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I, I didn't do that. I'm actually excited about the questions. Uh, beginning next week, we have really, uh, someone had submitted this question. It's a great way to start off this series. So next we're going to hit the first question. But you might still have some questions. Maybe you're saying, well, it wasn't that big a deal. And I didn't think we'd do a, a, a whole series on our a whole message on that. And so what we've done is we have six weeks of pick six. Then we have one week where you have to talk about something else. But then we've added in one week. So eight weeks from, from the start of this series, we're going to add in one Sunday where we take some of those smaller questions and just kind of popcorn style answer those. And so if pick six represents a touchdown when you intercept the ball and you return it for a touchdown, we're calling that week the extra point. Because we want to answer some of those extra questions. Uh, so if you have questions still, even though we have kind of all the weeks filled up, there's still a chance to submit them. Maybe your question will be better than somebody else's and we'll kick them out anyway. Uh, so if you still have questions or if you have a small question, write it down or go to pick6.org. Uh, all the information is on the card. These are available back in the back of the church now. But Pick 6 starts off next week and we're really excited about that. But we've been in the book of James chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up there. If not... Uh, we'll share the verses up on the screen in just a second. Before we get to James, though, I, I want to talk about something. Because last week we left off with, with this idea that, that James, who is who's writing the book of James, he's the half-brother of Jesus, and he's writing to people who are in his church, in the church in Jerusalem, and he's writing to them about what it means to have a real, genuine faith. And, and I think that we could fast forward 2,000 years to where we're at, and still sometimes for us, we wrestle with, okay, I know that I have belief in God, but is belief in God enough? Like, shouldn't there be something that, that is added to that to make my faith real? And James is answering that question saying, absolutely. If we have genuine faith, that genuine faith should start to work itself out. And so we shared the verse kind of at the end where it talks about faith without works is dead being alone. And we said there's, there's some, some wrestling, there's some tension there because there are other places in Scripture where if we're not careful, it seems like they might be in contradiction with each other. And so I want us to understand first and foremost what the message of the Bible and ultimately what the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is all about. So before we turn to James chapter 2 to finish up this, this message, I want to go back to Romans chapter 3, verse, 20, verse 28. In Romans 3, 28, we see this, this basic teaching on what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. And it says this in Romans 3, 28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So we want to get this idea because you're going to see a verse later on that seems to be in direct opposition to this, or at least in competition with it. And so we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. 
in order, in order to understand the context, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans. And the Apostle Paul had an, an amazing mind, especially a legal mind. And so he writes not just here, but throughout Romans and throughout a lot of his other writings. And we see this consistent with all of Scripture. That the idea of us, and there's a big, huge theological term that's right in the middle of this verse. If you look at that, what's the one word that right away jumps out and says that kind of could be a theological term? Justified. Some people hear that, and, and sometimes you go to church and you hear words like justification and sanctification, and you hear all these words, and you just kind of glaze over and you think, like, what does that even mean? Well, Paul writes, and Paul writes with this incredibly legal mind. James is going to use the same word in just a little bit. But Paul writes from the, from the setting of having a, an incredible legal mind. And he writes here, and he writes in, over Romans chapter 1, verse 17, these ideas that the just, from, coming from the word justified, the just shall live by faith. And so we have to begin by asking the question, okay, what does that word justify, what does that even mean? And literally, in, in a legal sense, the word justify means to be declared Righteous. So if, if we're sitting here now, if we're sitting here, if we're in God's giant courtroom, and we appear before him, and we realize we're justified by faith apart from works, that when we stand before God, and God says, why should I allow you in heaven? Not this happens, but if it did happen, if we were standing before God, and God said, why should I allow you to go in heaven? We say, well, it's not because of works of the law. It's not because of any good works that I've done. I don't, I don't gain access to the Father because I've been a good person, or because I went to church, or because I read my Bible. I don't get to go to heaven because I prayed or because I went to Honduras and built homes or any of those things. Those are things we should be doing. But Paul writes and says we are not justified. We are not declared righteous because of those works. We are only declared righteous because of the works of Jesus, not based upon anything that we do. And so he writes and says we are not justified. We are not declared righteous by, we are declared righteous by faith apart from works of the law. So the only way we're declared righteous is because of what Jesus did and the faith that we have in him, not based upon the things that we do. And here's the crazy thing about this teaching, is as we look at that and that as we're declared righteous, if we're in God's courtroom again, and God's sitting there and he has the big gavel, and God looks down, he looks at me and he says, JJ, I have a whole list of things here that you've done wrong. But because of what Jesus did, I'm going to bang that gavel now, now, we can compare ourselves to other people and think, well, we weren't really that bad. I mean, look at this person. He, he grew up, and he was crazy, and he dealt drugs, and he murdered. Like, like me compared to that person, I might not look that bad. But we learned last week that if we're guilty of one, we're guilty of them all. And so if we're in God's courtroom, we absolutely, every one of us, it doesn't matter who we are, every one of us deserves for God to bang the gavel down and say, you're guilty. But because of what Jesus did, not only, like if the story was written, if this word, verse was written and a different word was used and God banged the gavel down and said, you're not guilty, that alone would have been enough. Because I know I deserve guilt. God, I know I've violated your, I've, I've sinned, I've violated your commandments, I've gone against you. I deserve that bang of the gavel and for him to declare me guilty. And so if he came and all he did was declare me not guilty, that alone would be enough for me to hoop and holler and be excited because, man, I deserve punishment. But I wasn't punished because of what Jesus did. He took my punishment. 
But the word justified, being declared righteous, doesn't just mean that God bangs down, the ga- bangs down the gavel and says we're not guilty. But it literally means that God now looks at us, those of us who've made a decision to follow Christ. God now looks at us, and because of what Jesus did, his righteousness is now put into our account. So not only am I declared not guilty, but I'm declared to be righteous. And that's crazy because I don't deserve that. And so Paul writes and says, it's not because of the works of the law that you've done, but it's because of faith in Christ that your sin is put into Christ's account and Christ's righteousness is put into your account. That's orthodox teaching. That's that's what most churches, every evangelical church is going to teach, that idea that we're justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And that's Romans 3.28. Now we're going to contrast that real quick because we're going to flip over to James chapter 2. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week. See, there was one verse we kind of finished up, James 2, verses 17, before we get into really what's the next paragraph in this, in this chapter. James two seventeen says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And we said by contrast, faith, if it has works, is, is alive. But we said faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But James knows that there are people, in, in maybe even in his congregation, or there are people that are in the community that are teaching something that's foreign to what he knows. See, there are people that were teaching, and we can see this today, there are people that were teaching that says, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe, as long as you do good works and help people out, like that should be enough to get you by. And there are other people that say, it doesn't matter if you do all those good works, as long as you believe the right things, that that should get you by. And so James says there's this argument that's happening that faith and works could be separated. That these two things don't need to go together. And it's not that faith and works save us, but once we have genuine faith, it should produce good works. And so there are these people that were arguing, and sometimes when when people want to argue things that are kind of theological, they sit in rooms and they sit for hours talking about things that that sometimes don't even matter. I had a chance to go to a a Christian college, and I remember I I was relatively new to church I'd only a couple of years before given my life to Jesus, and I was, I was training to understand the Bible and all that stuff, and, and I, I learned so much. I'm so grateful for that opportunity. Uh, but I remember in particular, the former pastor here, Tim Collins, he and I were in some classes together, and we used to debate the same things over and over. He and I would talk for hours about some of these things. They're really, in, in a general setting, it doesn't really matter all that much. And sometimes people argue things that are, that are in theory And these people are sitting here saying, well, isn't it possible for us to have faith and not have works? And someone says, well, no, as long as we have good works, then faith isn't all really that essential. It doesn't matter what we believe as long as we do good things. And so James says, I want to speak to people who think faith and works don't have to be combined in our lives. And so even though there's a whole group of people that that believe this, he says, in in order for for me to present this argument, I'm going to present a a really fictitious person as a representative. For people who do these type of arguments, it's actually called, called an interlocutor. But it's a person who kind of fictitiously represents a whole group of people in the argument that they might have. And so James says, but someone will say, there's not one specific person, but a whole group of people that believe this. But someone will say, you have faith. And I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So there seems to be this whole group of people, it doesn't say whether it's in the church or just in the community, but there's a group of people who says it is possible to have faith and works be separated. 
And so James says, there's going to be someone who says this, that it's possible to have these two things that are separate. He says, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. So in this case, this person who's actually coming from a position of saying, I have works. I might not have faith that you talk about, but I have works. But he says, it's possible for these two ideas to be separate. And James says, I need to address this, this fictitious person, but representing real people who believe this, I need to address this. If, if we were to go around today, even in, in Polk County, I'd say within a couple of miles of, of the church here, there are good people, there are even sometimes churches and whole denominations that hold on to this idea. Uh, some churches hold on to the idea that it doesn't really matter what you believe, we want to love the community and we want to do really good works, and we might not hold back on, we might not believe exactly what the Bible says about certain things, but we are out, and genuinely, they love the community, they're trying to do good works, and they're all about just being missional and serving their area, and they said it's really important what we do, it doesn't really matter what we believe. And there are other churches, and they mean well. There are other churches, there are other people that say, I want to believe solidly and consistently what the Bible says, and I want to do the right thing, or at least I want, I want to have the right faith at least, and I'm not really going to love people, but I'm going to hold fast on truth. And I'm going to put my foot down when people violate the Bible. I'm going to get really excited about this. And they are really passionate about truth. But they could care less about their community. And James says these two things cannot be. We can't be passionate about what we believe without it affecting the way we love the community around us. And that means we go back to what we talked about a couple weeks ago. We love people indiscriminately. It doesn't matter what background they come from. It doesn't matter if, if they talk like us or look like us or like the same type of music or, or whatever. We love people indiscriminately and we love people unconditionally. And James writes and says, it is absolutely essential for us to have genuine faith. It's essential for us to know what we believe and for that faith to affect the way we live out our lives in front of the community. And so he creates this fictitious person. He says, some people think it's possible to have those two things separate. And then James chooses to address, in particular, people who were really b- big on, on believing. And, and maybe their actions were working out, maybe not. But he says this. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's interesting because James was writing to the church, or he's, he's pastoring, helping lead the church in Jerusalem which is made up primarily of Jewish believers. It's not entirely Jewish believers, but there are a lot of Jewish people that are in Jerusalem who came to realize Jesus was the Messiah, and they start to follow Jesus. And so James comes and he brings this argument that for us might have been lost. But for the Jewish people, for them, foundation to their faith, there's back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, there's what's called the Shema. And the Shema is the basic foundation belief for the Jewish people. And here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It says that in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And these people would have memorized that from the time they were children. They would have repeated that over and over. And so James writes and he says, you believe that God is one. You've been saying this from Deuteronomy for all of your life. You believe that God is one and that's important. But is that enough? Because he says, even the demons believe. Even, even the demons know that God is one, and they shudder at the name of God, but belief in God is not enough. There's a big difference between believing in Jesus and saying, yeah, I believe he's a historical person, that he probably was who he claimed to be, and believing on Jesus for salvation. It's a genuine faith. It says, even the demons believe, and they shudder. 
And then he says to this fictitious person representing a whole group of people, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James is not holding back at all. He's speaking to this person representing a whole group of people, and he says, listen, if you believe this, this stuff that you're arguing in theory that you think you can do this and and they can do that, he says, if you believe that, you're actually a foolish person. But if you want to do that, I'm going to use this person as an example, this this fictitious person as an example, as a person I'm going to argue against. But if you want me to show you, I'm going to show you a real-life, tangible example of what it means to have genuine faith. You see, we can't separate these two ideas. James has been trumpeting this idea that faith without works is dead. But... Works, we have to get this too. Works without faith is futile. If we existed as a church simply to help out in the community, we want to do all those things. In fact, one of our core values is we want to extravagantly love our community. But if all we did, if we said we're, that's all we're going to stand on is just helping people out, separate from how Jesus brings deliverance, then all the stuff that we would do would be futile. So faith without works is, is dead, but works without faith is futile. But when our selfless actions are added to our genuine belief, then faith becomes tangibly real. In my life, when selfless actions are added to genuine belief, faith becomes tangibly real. That's when it becomes real for us. When we say, I know what I believe, I have genuine faith in Jesus. And I know he's the only one who's going to bring deliverance. He's the only one that's going to bring hope for our world. And once I know I have that faith, I go about, I genuinely want to love the community around me. I want to extravagantly love them. And when those two things are together, combined, not for salvation, because salvation is only based on the faith, but in terms of usefulness, when those two things are combined, our faith, the faith of our church becomes tangibly real in the community around us. Why? Because we know what we believe and we're serving like he taught us to serve. And so he writes and he says, you, you're making this argument with fictitious people, but let me give you some real life examples. And he says in verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? So he begins for these Jewish people who are, who are now believers, but they're Jewish people who understood that Abraham, you guys know Father Abraham had many sons and right arm and left arm and all that stuff. I mean, he has a song written about him. And he says, our, our father Abraham was justified by the works that he did because he offered his son Isaac. God had promised Abraham, you're going to have a son and, and he's gonna, you're going to be the beginning of the nation of Israel. And for a long time, he didn't have that son. And then when he finally has the son, God says, okay, now that you have that son, you have to go offer him as, as, as a sacrifice on the altar. And Abraham says, okay, I'm going to be obedient. And I'm going to go and I'm going to offer my son. And all the way up to the point that he has his son up on the altar, he's willing to be obedient to God. And it says here, because of what he did, that he was justified. That happens in Genesis chapter 22. But actually prior to that in Genesis 15, Way before that, it's also said that Abraham was justified because of the faith that he had. And because his faith acted itself out seven chapters later in Genesis chapter 22. And it says in verse 22 then, we see that Father Abraham was justified by works. And you see that faith was active along with his works. And that faith was completed by his works. See, we have genuine faith. Abraham wasn't justified before God 
because of the things that he did. He was justified because he had genuine faith. But it says here the faith was active and the faith was completed because of the stuff that he did to prove the works that he had. Prove the faith that he had. So he says Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 is justified because he's willing to offer his son Isaac on the altar. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. That'd be awesome if that could be said about us. But then it said this, and this is the verse that we would contrast with the verse we had earlier in Romans chapter 3. It says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Leave that up there a second because I want to talk about this. By contrast, James 2 here, verse 24, says, you see that a person is justified by what? By works. That seems to go against Paul because Paul said, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works. And James writes and says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so we see why people who are studying the Bible and comparing these things, they look at them and say, wait a minute, these two ideas seem in contrast. And that's why we said last week, Martin Luther, who was big time on salvation by faith alone, said, I don't really like the book of James because it doesn't seem to mesh with the rest of Scripture. But here's what Martin Luther was missing, and here's what we could be missing. If, 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 and I, I respect the daylights out of Martin Luther and what he did with the Reformation, but he missed this point. Sometimes, depending on our context, words have different meanings. And that's not just an escape. It's not just me getting away from this. Uh, let me talk for a second. The word scan. It's a simple word. We all have used the word scan at different times. But if, if I asked everybody here, what does the word scan mean? We probably have some different definitions for the word scan. Because some of you, right away, your mind would think, well, I know when I was in high school, teacher would ask me if I read a book. I could flip through and say, well, I scanned every page. And at least, you know, when we say I scanned every page, it means I kind of flipped through really quickly. I didn't do like a thorough research on it, but I scanned every page. And so the word scan means to kind of like flip through real quick and not really pay much attention. But if someone goes to get a brain scan... And the doctor says, I'm just going to flip through real quick and not really pay much attention. They're not going to like the word scanned used that way. In fact, I did some research. According to dictionary.com, the word scan, the first definition for the word scan is to glance or read hastily. Scan through a book, I glance through it and read it very quickly. The very second definition of scan is is to examine particulars minutely or to scrutinize. The exact opposite meaning. One means to flip through quickly and not really pay attention, and the other means to scrutinize for minute detail. The same word having two almost opposite meanings. So we come back to this word justified. In Paul's writing, Paul comes with this incredibly legal mind, and he's writing to people who maybe don't have faith to explain how to have faith. And he says, when you're justified, when you're declared right before God, it's not based upon the good stuff that you do. It's based entirely upon the faith that you have in what Jesus already did for you. That's why it was necessary for him to die as a sacrifice on your behalf. And so Paul writes understanding the idea of the legal transaction that has to take place for Jesus to die for our sins. And writes for us to be declared righteous is through faith. But James is writing not about the legal transaction, but he's writing this whole section is about how our faith is made useful. If you would, 
it would be as if Paul's writing saying, here's how we're justified in God's holy courtroom. But James is writing saying, here's how you're justified in front of your peers. You see, there are a lot of us today, and we have friends who say, I stopped going to church because I was at the church, they had a bunch of stuff that happened, or I never went to church because I've heard all these bad things. And we realize we're living in a world where people are hungry for answers. And so part of our example, part of our testimony is the way that we live in front of our peers. And James's writing focused more on being justified in front of our peers. Abraham was justified in front of his peers because he was willing to offer up his son Isaac on the altar. And so James writes, Paul writes from a legal transaction, James writes from a position of usefulness. And he says, because of that, you see that in front of our friends, in front of the people we have contact with, they're not going to care so much about what we believe if we're not living out a genuine faith. And so James writes and says, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Faith is essential, but we're not justified by faith alone in terms of the usefulness of that faith. Now, James could have left the argument right there. Like, honestly, when I was studying, I said, that would have been enough. Like, for us to break down this whole thing, and, and for the Jewish audience that would have been listening to James's messages and, and, and read what James wrote here, that would have been enough for it to make sense. He used Abraham as an example against this fictitious person, and it all kind of made sense, and now the whole thing kind of comes together. And if he would have cut it off there, it would have been enough. But I love the fact, I think for our benefit... That Paul says, but I'm not going to finish there. i got one more example I want to use. And he ought to use one example as Abraham, the father of the Israelites, this, this great leader, a person who is revered highly among the Jewish people. He says, but I have one more example I want to use. The next verse. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? If you could imagine, and the Jewish people would have been familiar with this story, but if you could imagine some of the readers thinking, okay, I understand you using Abraham as kind of the example for our faith and this great leader, but you're going to throw in with Abraham, the guy who has a song written after him, you're going to throw a prostitute in there? But God's idea in this is that it doesn't matter what background we come from. When we have genuine faith, God can deliver people from all kinds of stuff, and God can use their story to be justified by faith but in the works that are added. See, there's another story from Joshua chapter 2. Where Joshua is sending spies into the land of Jericho to figure out, can we defeat them? What do we have to do? And there's this lady named Rahab. She is a prostitute. And they go to her house and, and she believes, even though she's not a, a Jewish person, she believes that God is in what they're doing. And so she hides these two men up on a roof and, and her own people come looking for them. And she hides them. And eventually through that, God uses this prostitute to bring about victory. And God says, wait a minute, I'm going to use Abraham as an example of faith. But I'm also going to use, here in James chapter 2, it says, Rahab the prostitute as an example that our faith that is genuine, that is worked out, means it doesn't matter what our past looked like, it matters what we've done with the faith that we have now. I heard this a, a long time ago, and this is forever stuck with me. Because every one of us, we have a story, we have a background, and some might be worse than others. But we have a story that's fractured and broken without Jesus. And I heard one of my friends make this statement, and it just kind of stuck with me. But he said, God specializes in taking our broken pieces and turning them into masterpieces. Like, that's what God does. And so in the midst of this great teaching on how to make our faith practical, 
He says, I'm going to take the broken pieces of this prostitute named Rahab, and I'm going to show forever etched in history and scripture, I'm going to show how God can use this person with this background to have genuine faith and have selfless action, and how those two things combined makes our faith intrinsically real. And so God says, I'm going to use Father Abraham as a real-life example. I'm going to use Rahab the prostitute as a real-life example to say that I can take wherever you've been in the past, I can deliver you from that, but once you have genuine faith, it is absolutely essential that selfless action is added to genuine belief in order for that faith to become real. And he finishes it out with this. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. My body without my spirit is useless. My faith apart from working itself out in real life situations is useless, it's worthless, it's futile. A couple of weeks ago, I shared a couple of things that I was doing in my life, kind of preparing myself for this message. And one of them was I was reading this book uh, called Love Does by Bob Goff. And I encourage you, if, if you're a reader at all, go out and get this book. It's, it's, a, it's a very easy read. It's a bunch of fun stories. But there's so much. He'll take this story that really is like covering a lot of background and stuff. And then all of a sudden, he'll bring out this great point. I'm like, whoa, how did we get there? And in this, he actually shared a story about a, a, some people's and he was a lawyer trying to work out this resolution, and he, he actually ran out of boxing and had these two guys fight it out because they were so mad at each other. And he used that to kind of segue into the fights that we're supposed to have, genuine fights we're supposed to have. And he said this, and I love this. He says, I want to pick a fight because I want someone else's suffering to matter more to me. I want to slug it out where I can make a meaningful difference. God says he wants us to battle injustice, to look out for orphans and widows, and to give sacrificially. And anyone who gets distracted with the minutia of this point or that opinion is tagging out of the real skirmish. God wants us to get some skin in the game and help us make a tangible difference. I can't make a real need matter to me by listening to a story, visiting a website, or collecting information, or even wearing a bracelet about it. I need to pick the fight myself to call it out just like I called this guy Dale out. Then, most important of all, I need to run barefoot towards it. But I want to go barefoot because it's holy ground. I want to be running because time is short and none of us has as much runaway as we think we do. And I want to be a fight because that's where we can make a difference. That's what love does. There's opportunities all around us to make our faith genuine. And that might look different in your life than it does in mine. But there are opportunities all around us for our faith to become real, for it to be tangibly real. And we have to run those opportunities. And Bob says run barefooted because that's holy ground. Because we don't have as much runway left as we think. We want to make that faith count now. We want to do that collectively as a church. We also want to do that individually as as followers of Jesus. Because that's what he did. He ran to those opportunities. He reached out to people who many people would have ostracized and, and cast out. James is writing saying, I've seen what my brother did. I'm trying to teach that to the church. And we try to teach that today. Adding selfless action to a genuine belief makes our faith tangibly real. Let's pray.